Okay, so I just want to start by saying thank you for being here. I really appreciate um, your time and, and talking with me and having a critical dialogue about um, who you are and how you're navigating space today, given this current moment that we're in. So I wanted to kick it off by having you, you know, share your name, your pronouns, if you use anything and anything um, else that's pertinent about kind of who you are and what you do in terms of your identities um, and what you do for a living. Cool. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Andre Jamal Cardine. I am just turned 24 yesterday. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I am a uh, musician, singer, songwriter, producer, activist, and scholar um, from outside of Chicago, Illinois. Um, and I will be graduating in a few weeks from Longy MAT program in Los Angeles uh, with my master's in music teaching. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and so given that you're a musician, what has it been like for you um, kind of navigating space today, both physical space and digital space, kind of given this, this moment that we're in? And how have you thought about your identities within each of these spaces? Mm. Um, when quarantine first started, uh, I was actually starting to, I just moved to Los Angeles um, in July of 2019 for the Longy MAT program. And by the time March 2020 came around, I was actually just starting to pick up gigs a little bit more. Like I was starting to build community in Los Angeles. Uh, I was meeting people. I was just like getting gigs here and there. Uh, like, oh, can you sing background for this person? Or can you play piano here? Can you do that? Uh, so I was actually really excited at first around March. And COVID, COVID just kind of hit. And it seemed like the media wanted to portray it as a thing. Um, and it still kind of does this a little bit. Wanted to portray it as a thing that, like, we'll leave in a couple weeks or we'll leave in, like, 30 days. Um, so it was actually really disheartening to, to experience just being in isolation for now over two months because we're going into month three of this quarantine and the artist community just got hit so hard and like everyone in the arts and entertainment industry is really really feeling it like concerts getting canceled everyone's like tours getting canceled you all of a sudden can't be in the same space with people and like this is how artists artists make their money being in community you make your money in spaces like Pitchfork, for example, or like Lollapalooza or Coachella, just to see, to see artists, to see friends of mine, just like lose, lose the opportunity to make what they thought they were going to make for pretty much the entire year now, because concerts are just not going to be a thing, I don't think, until 2021, at least. Um, to see that was really hard, and to see Black artists because black art is is the culture pretty much like black artists are the ones who typically thrive who typically make the new music the new sounds even if we don't always benefit from it it's black artists that are like creating the next wave the next thing um 
and to see them just get hit and to see myself get hit because I had my own gigs lined up for March, April, and some going into the summer to see, to lose all that hurt really bad. Um, we, and I, I spent the first couple weeks writing a lot. I was like, okay, maybe I should make a project that is, is going to be called Quarantined Rough Takes uh, by myself. And um, one of the songs I have is like called Quarantine Radio. It talks about just like what it means to, what it means to be living in a pandemic within a pandemic, pretty much that first song, uh, you know, people dying like every day. Um, and it doesn't matter what race they are because COVID affects everyone, but COVID is affecting like black people at these higher rates because of the systems that are already set in place to keep black people behind. And those systems that I'm talking about in include mass incarceration, um, uh, poverty, um, living in underfunded communities due to things like redlining. Um, all these things come into effect. Being essential workers and having to be out all the time and potentially being exposed in that way. We have to be on the front lines to fight the disease, but also get hit by it at the same time. Um, so yeah, I think all these, all these kind of like issues coronavirus kind of exposed all these issues um and like how our society operates and artists the like job of the artists right now in my opinion is to reflect that in the music like is to reflect that in the work right now making a song that has nothing to do with this particular moment in time for me personally feels almost almost like it's not helpful um to where we are um because it's our job to like reflect the times and like the space and the the way the world is working for us so mm -hmm. yeah can you just share a little bit about what that creative process has been like because i know you've been putting out music fairly consistently um in spite of everything going on, especially how hard it's hit economically and your ability to get gigs, your ability to, to be physically in space and perform and, and mm -hmm. have that visceral connection to folks, right? Let them see you um, and see you embody the music and feel mm -hmm. that. So, so what has it been like now not having the ability to do that in the physical realm, but still trying to, to cultivate those feelings um, and give people a sense of hope or impart some kind of encouragement right now. What is, what's that creative process like? For me, I like, like I said, uh, back in like March and April, I spent a lot of time just like writing my feelings out about the quarantine, just like, okay, it feels like we're in a war right now almost, or we're like waging for war. And I'm just like writing out these feelings like, gentrification is doing this that and the third like um and i'm just like i'm really just like writing everything that's on my mind kind of just like going crazy in my notes mm -hmm. and making these songs that like feel making these songs that feel kind of upbeat because i feel like for myself i have the tendency as an artist to like kind of be slow and kind of mellow sometimes so i've been trying to like write outside of that and like what does a protest song feel like when it has like this 
strong posts. So I've been like drawing inspiration from artists like Otis Redding and Nina Simone and Stevie Wonder, like artists who were um, fairly outspoken um, about black freedom and black liberation. Um, so that process, I started to go back more uh, and kind of like reanalyze like why songs were written at the specific time they were and what is um what is like black pain look like what is like black protests look like what is like black joy look like um and i've drawn inspiration from those songs and that music and it's heavily influenced the type of music that i've been making recently uh and even within the past week with the rise of all the protests that we've seen across the nation due to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and um, other black bodies that we've seen get killed in the midst of a pandemic, I feel has really inspired um, some of the music that I've made more recently, um, just because it's, it's so hard to, it's so hard for me to not use my voice to, you know, amplify, amplify um, a specific type of black thought, um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And with the, another thing with the protests too, in the past week, I feel, I feel as though people have been tired. People of all races have been tired of being lied to and deceived. I think this quarantine, Corona and police brutality, the way the media decides to cover something mm -hmm. versus the way that something can just go viral within an hour on social media mm -hmm. has really like opened people's eyes to the fact that our media is used as a way to sort of brainwash people almost to convince you to think to convince you to think that all these rioters are just in the streets and there's just a bunch of looters stealing things there's a whole we've been like taught to be divided so much mm -hmm. that you can you can be convinced that all the protests are just rioters and looters. And if you don't have a social media, not even realize that the police are actually the ones that incite a lot of the violence that happens at these protests. Because if we didn't have social media and we just relied on the news to tell us what was happening, we wouldn't have a lot of the answers that we have. We wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to, um, what's the word I'm searching for? we wouldn't be able to organize in the way that we can now. Now you can like look at Black Lives Matter hashtag, for example, and you can see what people are doing in various different cities around the, the country and even in the world. Like you can see what a protest literally looks like. Like if someone goes on Instagram live and they're just like recording the protest, you get to almost you get to be there you get to like see it firsthand for yourself mm -hmm. um and then you can turn on the news uh, my family and i we watch the news too just because we want to see how they're trying to like 
craft a particular narrative in real time. Um, so you can watch the news and you can see like, oh, rioters and looters are like stealing all these things. And then they'll focus on that for like 45 minutes to an hour, but they won't give you almost any coverage um, on the eight hour protest, peaceful mm -hmm. protest mm -hmm. um, that happened in addition to it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I mean, I completely agree. I think media narrative is powerful and I think it always ends up reinforcing kind of oppressive structures and hierarchies that subjugate black bodies um, and mm -hmm. position black bodies as both hyper physical, but also threatening and also something to be targeted. And um, I'm just wondering what has been your own kind of um, refusal to those narratives? What are the ways that you've tried to kind of reshape knowledge around um, some of those false narratives, some of those um, false binaries, those inaccurate um, and, and not holistic stories? Like what, what are the ways that you're kind of um, inserting yourself and your, even your identities into that to kind of change that? Well, I think, I think it's really important. I think there's this sense of enlightenment that everyone is exposed to. Um, we're all learning, we're all growing, and we're all going towards a particular destiny. Um, and in that run or that walk or that crawl or that jog or that stand still wherever you are, wherever place you are in life. Um, for me, it's important to always, always throw a narrative in a space that might not be there already. Um, and I can like share some examples. Um, there, I have a friend on Facebook who throws, who threw the argument out you know, we're mad about police violence and police brutality, but like, what about black on black crime? Um, this is an issue within our own community. And I just invited him, one, to understand that folks of all crime commit crime to other folks of all crime. Uh, folks from all races, rather, commit crime to folks of all races. So white on white crime is a thing. White on black crime is a thing. Black on white crime is a thing. All these all these forms of crime are a thing. So this narrative of what about black on black crime is a sort of distraction almost, in my opinion. Um, and it's meant to make us think that we have to just look inward and ignore this issue without being able to talk about both issues at the same time. If you think it's an issue that has to be discussed. And I offer the idea that like there it's it's something to be said that if a black man murders another black man or a black woman, black person, that person is more likely to go to jail than a police officer who murders a black body. Mm -hmm. Because we see police officers get off so much from that you know um so that's one way i like to try to enlighten people and then another uh argument specifically within black communities is 
I feel like it's easy for straight cisgendered black folks to take black LGBTQ identifying folks out of the Black Lives Matter movement or narrative. Mm-hmm. It's um, that's something I've also seen on social media a lot, where it's like a queer person will say black queer lives matter or black gay lives matter. And a straight person will come on that same post and say, that's not the conversation right now. Like that's not important when it is important. I'm blanking on the name of the black trans woman that was beat, but there was a, uh, a viral video of about seven to 10 black, like seemingly straight identifying black men beating this black trans woman. I, um, I think her name's Ayana mm-hmm. Dior or something. I think, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but yes, that video was going around and that's a, that's a chance for me to also enlighten too. Like black queer folks do matter. Um, a black trans woman, uh, Marsha P. Johnson through the first stone for the Stonewall riots, uh, in the sixties. And that's why we have pride, but those kind of things, kind of get like lost in the narrative, lost in translation. So I try to educate myself as much as I can. That way, when I see people who want to have a conversation, even if it's argumentative, even if it's taxing, they want to have a conversation and they're angry, they're upset, or they want to know more. Mm. I feel like it's my job to like throw that other narrative in the, in the room, in the space, because it's like, Clearly, you want to have a talk. Clearly, you've had this process going in your mind for a while. So, like, let's try to get you from point A to point B. Or let me try to see what you, what you're really trying to get at, too. And I think I learned this um, sense of storytelling, too. Uh, just being a part of things like Posse or the Obama Foundation, where you're really learning how to build genuine community with one another especially with folks who think differently from you um so i think that's where that kind of stems from Mm. yeah thank you for that and and one thing it's making me think about too is kind of this false narrative that blackness and the performance of blackness has to look a certain kind of way right like it can't it can't be pluriverse it can't be fluid it can't be dynamic it can't be it has to be this kind of radical one-dimensional blackness right at the same time can be very heteronormative very cis very you know and it's yeah i'm thinking about the ways in which we can do harm within our own communities and not uplift kind of um the plur- the pluralities of black of black life of black experience um of black thriving um as well as black pain and black rage and black anger um and i i'm wondering to what extent you've had to kind of look within and almost think about okay how do i want to assert every access of my identity right like how do i want to insert assert a particular kind of blackness or a particular kind of maleness or a particular kind of you know, insert whatever salient identity that you hold. Like, how have you thought about how you perform in space? So, yeah, I I was actually having a conversation with my piano teacher um, 
who's based in Los Angeles. His name is Ahmed Albaca, I think. Uh, and he, it actually gave me a great opportunity to check my own self in this moment. Um, for when the protests were really intensifying the past like few days, um, or the past week rather, I really felt like now wasn't the time for me to be, or for any artist to just be doing music. I personally was feeling like now was the time to actually be active in your community. And if you're gonna sing a song, go to the protest and sing a song or like share your voice over social media and take a strong stance towards black liberation. And I was like, anything else for me just didn't work. And I'm like still in that place a little bit where I'm just like, it feels too performative to just like make, it's easy as for artists, I think, to make things about them when they share their music or they release their content. And it's like, for me, it's kind of like a, you need to check your ego kind of thing. And I love Ahmed for this conversation because he made me realize that white supremacy, police brutality, uh, systemic racism, these kind of things that we're fighting are not black people's problem. This is not a black person's issue. So however a black person is responding to this, honestly, is not, there's no wrong way for a black person to respond to this particular moment in space and time. Um, and that, that conversation has been resonating with me ever since we've had it because it's made me re rethink what it means to diversify blackness and diversify like what it means to just be tired right now and be tired of seeing so many posts on social media. Um, a good friend of mine, Daniela, uh, she, she like can't like it's, it's too taxing to just be seeing black death, seeing black violence, seeing anger, seeing hate speech all over social media. And these are things that we're, we kind of, we take it in and we don't, we kind of numb ourselves to it. Um, so for me, um, I, I think it's really important to like, really understand that we are so new, unique and diverse as a people that like, it's not black people's jobs to educate you. It's not black people's jobs to be the main people organizing and protesting. And I really love to see people of color, non-black people of color and white people really on the front lines, really doing the work uh, that is necessary to kind of dismantle white supremacy. And I think I use my own like unique senses of identity, any form of identity, whether it's uh, queerness or it's blackness or it's being a male. Um, I think I have these, I think I have a unique set of identities that make me privileged and identities that make me oppressed that give me the sort of voice to kind of navigate a space and be able to shift the narrative in that room or that space um, in order to lead it towards liberation. Uh, and just to talk about that 
interesting dynamic. Like I grew up black. I grew up LGBTQ identifying. Um, I grew up middle class and I grew up, um, I grew up as a black Christian, uh, Pentecostal. So being like middle class and Pentecostal, for example, in America, those are things that give you an advantage because Christian is like the largest religion here. I'm pretty sure. Um, and being middle class gets you, um, more, gives you more of an advantage than someone who's poor or working class. Um, so those kind of, that gave me privilege. The oppression, being black, being queer, um, oh, and being male is another advantage too. I didn't find as male. Um, but those other two identities, being oppressed, allows me to be a voice, an authentic voice for a group of people who might not always be in a particular space, uh, if that makes sense. So being in Posse and going to, over, like having Posse grant me the ability to go to Oberlin College. People like me, people like us, aren't tra like, are traditionally in those spaces, like they like to see it, but we aren't overrepresented in that space like a Jewish person or a white person going through that school. So we have, we get the opportunity to be a voice for our people, even though we aren't necessarily spokespersons or spokespeople for the entire group, we just are able to give a perspective that that person is yet to see. Mm. Um, so yeah, I like using those, um, the duality between the privilege and the oppression to give, to grant people perspective, especially if they, love and appreciate and respect me for a particular thing that I do. Like if you follow me because I'm a musician or you follow me because I'm a critical thinker or a scholar, uh, but you haven't been exposed to some particular oppression or you don't understand yet how an oppressive system can like hurt an entire group of people. Mm -hmm. You get to experience a new way of thought that you might have been exposed to yet. Uh, because you haven't met someone like me, for example. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. For me, something that's sticking out that's kind of relevant to my own experience, and I'm curious if it's relevant to you or what you think about it, is this kind of um, kind of going on what you're saying about enlightenment. I think for me, I found it to be a double-edged sword um, because within you know our community, within the Black community, I think we have a voice and we have power and people look to us to be movers and shakers and be advocates um, and be social um, change agents. And I, I love that work and I think it's important. And I feel, I always feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of, of our ancestors and the folks that came before us that did their work. And I'm, I'm always in good company and I'm honored to occupy that, that space of, of privilege and, and using the advantage that I have in a positive way that uplifts my community. But the, the other side of that and why it's a double-edged sword is that I think 
for white folks and for non-black folks, we then can become the token black people to, 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 to take up those charges. And we become the folks that people reach out to, to say, Hey, like, what does my good ally work look like? What should I do? You know, etch out the path for me to, to do the anti-racist work or to be a good person. And it's, for them, they have this one dimensional kind of aspect of, or understanding of blackness that they look to us to fulfill um, right. because of who we are. And so I'm wondering if you, if you've had to kind of grapple with those tensions too, and how you assert yourself um, in spaces and how you let it be known, you know, these are my politics and, you know, I refuse to be kind of that, that token friend and, and hear other people you funnel them to, to talk to, to get a more perhaps radical experience or on the ground experience or, or, mm-hmm. do, how, or how, how do you think about that kind of like tension? Cause I, I you, you talked about it perfectly. Like it really is this duality of, of occupying a space of privilege and oppression and like people using it in very different ways than you might intend to use it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. So my first time where I felt like I was being tokenized was when I got to college because I went to school in Chicago. I went to uh, Brooks on the South side, which is a predominantly white, um, predominantly, no, I'm sorry, predominantly black school. Um, Brooks College Prep on the South side in Roseland. Um, so very black neighborhood, very black area. Then I did gallery, but even doing gallery, it was mixed race but it also was predominantly black too. So I wasn't really getting a different experience in the way that I got that experience when I went to Oberlin. Oberlin was the first time where I was constantly seeing me be a minority in a space. I had always felt like in my immediate life, I was a part of the majority because I was always around other black people. So going to Oberlin and... I joined Oberlin College Choir and I did Oberlin Overtones and I did these, these other groups. And I was just, I was a part of a lot of groups and a lot of things where I would be in a room and it would be just me in the room that was black in a class or just me and a couple of my friends who were the only black people in the space. And at first I felt trapped. I was like, I don't, What's funny to you isn't what's funny to me, <laughs> for starters. Like, mm-hmm. now I have to learn this. I feel like I have to learn this new way of being funny. And before college, I didn't listen to a lot of non-Black artists or a lot of non-Black music. So when we were, when we were doing music in the overtones, a lot of the songs I didn't know. Or if someone said, like, a Beatles reference, for example, or, like, Billy Joel or, like, some, just someone that I just didn't really care to listen to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't like get those, I didn't get those moments. So it felt like I had to do extra work just to be like seen. And then it felt like, oh, if there's a song that we're doing that is traditionally pr- pretty black, maybe under Khalid should actually be singing it. It felt like when we got into the overtones, for example, that white people had to start thinking like, okay, like how do we, how do we like 
make our group seem more diverse because traditionally it's like pretty white uh, without making it seem like this is just like a token person. Um, so for me to like get rid of that, to get rid of the feeling of being tokenized, I just, I'm like try my best to be almost the same as I would be if I were around like my black friends. And it's like impossible to do that truly because there are just things that you and I understand that like if one of my white friends was in a room having this conversation too, there are things that just won't click for them. Um, but being like being upfront about moments that are awkward for me helped being upfront and honest about like, I don't think I get that because that seems like a white thing for me. Just like kind of just like opening that dialogue and letting it happen and just like listening to what someone has to say or just having them like rethink uh, what they might have believed before me opening that dialogue or that space. And I'll give an example too. There was a moment that was undeniable for acknowledging like blackness and the oppression of black people that happened my sophomore year in the overtones. We were in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, doing like a tour. Um, and one of the women's whose house we were staying at, um, she basically said that like black people needed a leader, like when Martin Luther King was alive, um, because now they're just, and this is to give like more context. My sophomore year is the um, year that Donald Trump has started talking about running for um, running for um, president. And this is in like March of 2016. So he's, you know, if he hasn't won the nomination already, he's about to win it. Um, so, you know, she's, she's watching like CNN news. She's saying that like, and he's saying that like black people, like, what do you have to lose? Like, you should just be voted for me. This is like that rhetoric at the time. So she's saying that like black people need a leader because they're just like a lost people. And like, as if Khalid and I are just sitting right here and I just literally am like, okay, why do we need a leader like Martin Luther King if all you're going to do is assassinate him? Mm. Answer me that question, you know? Mm. And those kind of moments kind of break down the idea that we can just tokenize you because now all the white overtones, they have to sit with that on their conscience all day. Like you can't just, you can't just like say like, oh, well, that was like an awkward moment or whatever. Because if I'm mad, like I'm, I'm pissed off about it, to be honest. Like I'm, I'm trying not to like, and this like goes into like my own personal like respectability politics that I carry for like adults and people that are older than me. I'm trying not to yell at you or be mad at you, be angry with you. Um, but I'm also very passionate in the fact that your ideology is wrong. Like this is a, like, that is not the thing to think at this moment. Um, so those kind of moments, just being unafraid and unapologetic to throw out moments like that when you know something is just like wrong, kind of break down the feeling of being tokenized for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing those anecdotes. I think they're especially um, 
helpful and enlightening for folks who are also asking like what is the good ally work I can do and it's it's not to look to you know their one black friend or one colleague to basically um, create the path forward to them is to do the work on their own to do research also to do what's uncomfortable and inconvenient because Mm -hmm. we have been and continue to be inconvenienced um, by anti-black racism by police brutality by white supremacy by all of these oppressive structures um so i just i want to like definitely underscore what you're saying i i feel you and i agree with you um and it's a hard burden to carry of being that kind of token person in the life of folks um but something that you said earlier is is still sticking with me in terms of you mentioned the word liberation um and i know that for you Um, you've, you know, we all are trying to struggle right now for freedom and and figuring out what freedom could look like in this moment. And I feel like it's easy to be unmotivated and discouraged. Um, But I'm wondering, like, what for you has felt liberatory lately? Um, And how how would you encourage that for other people? Um, I, what's been feeling freeing for me has definitely been black artists who are singing and rapping and writing and producing about liberation. Uh, Nina Simone, uh, I, I actually moved back home. Uh, I'm going to be here at least until the pandemic ends. And I took my desk from LA apart and I like, brought it back here. And when I was putting the desk back together, I was just listening to a lot of Nina Simone and I'm just like, wow, like this voice, her voice is like fighting for freedom and fighting for liberation. Um, And voices like that were so essential to the movements at the time, especially like the sixties and seventies. And just like, one thing I think we don't talk about enough is a lot of like the black leaders and activists and singers from like the civil rights movement were friends with one another or like had some sort of relationship with each other. Like right now I'm thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. Always calling for like voices like Mahalia Jackson to sing for the movement and sing for the people. Nina Simone and James Baldwin, like people who are in slightly different lanes or slightly different avenues of work fighting towards the same thing. So it's been freeing for me to see black people support one another, uh, black activists support one another. One of my favorite artists, um, well, like artist activists, um, because she's very big into activism, is uh, No Name uh, from Chicago. She's always using her voice, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, to fight for black radical liberation. She's like, it's not enough anymore to just fight for police reform. We have to be amplifying voices and organizations that are for defunding police uh, overall and investing that money into our communities because we can see, we see a lot of like budgets. I'll talk about LAPD specifically. Um, LAPD, uh, has like a $3 billion budget that they're trying to get approved. 
for for police and a lot of activists have been like fighting against that and in the past couple of days they took out 150 million dollars from that three billion dollar budget and you know some people are like celebrating like yay this is good like they're getting this cut back and people like no name are like no that's not good enough like defund it entirely because you're only taking out i don't even know the math off the top of my head but that's can't be more than like five percent uh of the budget and it's just like defund that entirely so it's been really freeing for me to like listen to music that is about the liberation it's calm and it's soothing and to just take um i'm back home with my family and uh just to like talk to my my family uh both of my parents um work worked in the criminal justice system like my dad's a parole officer and my mom was an executive on the prisoner review board for many years before she switched careers and to hear the perspective of black people who see how the system tries to keep black bodies and just the the fight within itself just to see them refuse to be a part of the system in a way that is literally oppressing people. Like it's like one thing to commit a violent crime and know that you deserve to go to jail, so to speak. Uh, and it's another thing to know that someone had got arrested for maybe having 10 grams of weed, some sort of nonviolent offense. And then to see higher ups, like to see your bosses upset because you don't want to send that person to prison. Like that's kind of the thing that my mom was fighting while, while she was working there. So she's like, I'm not going to send black bodies to prison just so you can like fill the prison up. And she always talks about, she talks a lot about the documentary 13th by um, Ava DuVernay. Mm -hmm. And she's like, when I was working in the uh, prison system here uh, in Cook County, I saw that happening in real time this like this intention of like this new form of slavery where we're going to implement all these new rules and laws that have mandatory sentences that have like um just to like keep a body in prison and while that body is in prison now you're going to like build clothes or shoes or um just like items for these fortune 500 companies and these other companies just so they can get basically slave labor and we're only going to pay you 10 15 cent and when you get out of prison you're no longer you're no longer like an actual citizen we're not going to treat you like a citizen you don't have the right to vote and this prison like our prison system is kind of like set up to like keep people in these cycles so it's been kind of liberating to talk to my family too just because they're they're very well informed people uh, my parents are you know obviously older than me so they come from like a different generation and they're given like new perspective uh, but that perspective I think is definitely like informative and helpful for us too because we're like if we know what was happening to them when they were growing up in the 80s like the uh, when like the war on drugs was kind of happening. Um, those kind of perspectives and narratives help us understand 
how systems of oppression will keep trying to form new ways to oppress people. Uh, and we can't just be satisfied with a bill passing or some type of act passing legislation. We have to literally transform the way our society operates. Um, so it's been freeing to hear like very radical perspectives and narratives, just not be satisfied with the same things happening over and over. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I, I feel you. I think more than anything, we need to really latch on to those ways of um, knowing and being and existing in the world and to find venues where we can talk about these things openly and candidly. And that's what I really <laughs> wanted this space to be too. Um, and so I'm grateful for these conversations. I'm grateful for all of the insight and wisdom that you've imparted Um, And I just want to kind of close out by allowing you to share anything that you felt has been on your heart and spirit lately um, or just anything that you felt weren't covered here that that has been um, really pertinent to who you are and what's going on in your own world and how you're living in this moment right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, For me, I think I've spent time trying to educate myself more on on the movement and what uh, grassroots organizations in various different parts, various different cities around like the nation have been doing to um, to help fight towards black liberation. And I think the my personal goal has been wanting to educate as many people as possible and be educated by as much information as possible uh, towards like fighting for freedom. Because right now that's that's just been the thing that's like been at the forefront of my mind. And that just involves like reading more, just reading more and reflecting more, uh, watching more documentaries uh, and just understanding how, not just how systems of oppression work, uh, because these things, the things that we are fighting are working exactly the way that they were designed and meant to work and understanding that like we as black people were never intended on being citizens in this place. We were just meant to work and build it up. Um, And the goal, the goal of like unity of not just like black communities specifically, but uniting with other POC communities and uh, standing together to like fight for black liberation and liberation of all people, uh, but black liberation specifically and first, in my opinion, uh, that's been the thing that like has been super important to me. Uh, and that's what keeps me going and understanding that like our freedom will be fought for through like our communities and through the people who like hold us down. So that's like, staying connected with like close friends that's like staying connected with family that's checking in or you know just checking in on your people and checking in on your loved ones uh because a time like this um right now i think it's popular for people to care about us right now we're in a place where it's like the popular thing to do is be like you know, you kind of get like these emails from these companies or corporations or your school and they're just like, we stand with black people and blah, 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 blah. And that's like, that's cute. 
But now that is the new bare minimum. Sending an email like this is the bare minimum because everybody's doing it. What everybody isn't doing is talking about defunding the police, talking about black liberation and how to get there, talking about reparations for African-Americans for you can say 400 years of slavery all you want to, but we're still fighting that same fight if you look at our prison system. So it's just like right now, I think it's important to understand that like as white people, there is always something else that you can be doing to help the movement. There's always something more that you can be doing and understand like black people are tired and it's not our response. Though we're going to take it on anyway, it's not our responsibility to fight the illness known as racism in this country. That's not our job, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm. So yeah, that's it. Oh, thank you, Andre. I really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you for being who you are. I appreciate your voice in this world. I appreciate all the ways in which you've funneled all of your emotions of, of rage and sadness and frustration into your music and you are a light and you are encouraging and I'm grateful for this dialogue with you. Thank you so much. I love you too so much. I'm so glad we got a chance to like just catch up and do this. And yeah, I look forward to more conversations with you. Definitely. Definitely. And I wish you all the best because you are a talent. You are a gem to this world. And you know, I look up to you. Definitely. You are always spreading light, always spreading positivity always spreading laughs, good jokes. I just love you so much. Mm -hmm. I love you too.